about to listen to is a podcast produced by Philoclea Ministries. Philoclea Ministries is offered to all free of charge. However, there are real and immediate needs associated with it. If you are a regular listener or enjoy any of the content produced by Philoclea Ministries, we humbly ask that you consider becoming a contributor. You can learn more about our funding needs at www.philokaleaministries.org. Please note that Philokalia Ministries is not a 401c3 nonprofit organization and that contributions are not tax deductible. Supporting Philokalia Ministries is just like supporting your other favorite podcasters and content creators, and all proceeds pay the production bills, make it possible for us to pay our content manager, and provide a living stipend for Father David. God bless you and enjoy the podcast. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Ladder of Divine Ascent. Uh, as I mentioned, we are picking up with step number 15. Uh, entitled on incorruptible purity and chastity and even the title itself is striking the idea of, of purity of heart or chastity that is incorruptible that that would be the ideal or the goal that we would be seeking to be so focused upon God and the desire to love him that all of our thoughts are moving towards him but we've also let go of our attachment to the things that uh, can give rise to temptation and, uh, and, and so what we are called to uh, by grace and the action of the Holy Spirit within our lives is to participate again in that perfect love of the kingdom. And that's why John would entitle this as incorruptible purity and chastity. It's uh, the, the purity of God himself. And this is where we are going to have to uh, approach the text very prayerfully and allow ourselves to be drawn along. Uh, most of us have tasted it uh, only in its opposite, I think, rather than uh, this kind of perfect purity that he speaks of. And so being drawn on to what he's describing and understanding that and then embracing it is a whole other thing. So we're beginning with number two on page 40, 140, I'm sorry. He is pure who expels love with love and who has extinguished the material fire by the immaterial fire. So it's an interesting thought that our struggle for purity is not simply saying no to a kind of disordered love uh, or restraining ourselves uh, through the ascetic life or wrestling with our thoughts. It's expelling love with love, that we would extinguish an impure love by the perfect love of God and seeking to live in that as fully as we can, which tells us something very, something very important about uh, purity of heart in and of itself, that it comes about not by the strength of our own will, but only by grace. We give ourselves over as fully as we can uh, to the life of prayer and the other set of practices that help us in our struggle with the passions, but we really have to abandon ourselves radically through the grace of God uh, in order that this might be true, that material fire might be extinguished by immaterial fire, that the grace of God might purify our hearts. Number three, chastity is the name which is common 
to all the virtues. So here, again, we, we begin to see that chastity isn't simply uh, tied to sensuality or sexuality, uh, purity in the sense of uh, disordered sexual appetite, uh, that chastity is a name or is common to all the virtues. Rightly ordered love is what it means. And so in every area of our life, uh, every virtue that we are seeking to foster, we are seeking to foster our rightly ordered desire that it, we would be using things or engaging in things or relationships in such a way that it is ordered by the grace of God and toward the end that he would desire for it. And uh, so our desires and our appetites as human beings are not in and of themselves evil or bad. In fact, just the opposite. Uh, but uh, what is good within us has to be touched by the grace of God and perfected. And we want to open our minds and our heart to him as deeply as we can. It's not just overcoming vice then. It's allowing what is good in us to be perfected by his grace and to become what he desires it to be. And, uh, you know, I've mentioned this before that uh, even when we think about something such as prayer, and the discipline of prayer. We often have an idea of what that would look like within our minds. But I think as one progresses, one seeks to become more and more attentive to what God is calling them to, in terms of the measure to which they give themselves over to it and respond to that subtle call within the heart to turn to God, not only at the times that we set aside uh, for prayer, uh, or that we have set up as part of our prayer role, but that we are responding to God at every moment that he beckons us to draw close to him. And one can see why that would be so important uh, in the spiritual life, that uh, the evil one is not going to seek to affect us or afflict us just at the times when we are prepared for it. Uh, the evil one is relentless. And so we, we really want to become prayer and allow God to shape our hearts more and more that our, our desires are focused upon him and satisfied only fully in him. This is what allows us, uh, I think, to respond in the measure that God would desire from us. Number four, he is chaste who even during sleep feels no movement or change of any kind in his constitution. And so the purity of heart, we, you know, often there is a physical manifestation of our uh, appetites and also our passions that our body will respond in particular ways. And so John is saying here that as one's heart is purified, then the movement of the flesh uh, becomes less recognizable. That, and even our dreams, as we will see, uh, become less reflective of our being driven by the particular passions. The more in our waking life that we seek the things of God and to attach ourselves to the things of God, the less our dreams are filled with images and ideas or fantasies that are reflective of the passions that sometimes rule us. And, uh, and so there are certain measures, both in terms of the thoughts we have, the dreams we have, but even bodily movements 
that we would have where our uh, physically we would become aroused uh, would become less fr frequent uh, because again, our, our mind, our thoughts, our daydreams are not driving this for us. And again, you know, in our day and age, that might seem unimaginable uh, simply because of the constant uh, way that we are exposed to so many things uh, th through social media and television uh, that arouses the passions or becomes a source of temptation for us. And again, I think it speaks to us just uh, uh, how simple our life may have to become in the sense of guarding the mind and the heart, that we become more and more sensitive to the things that could uh, not only be a direct source of sin for us, but lead us to sin that would stir the appetites, the emotions, the feelings in such a way that it would lead us to, to give ourselves open or be vulnerable to temptation. And this will become clear in a few pages where he uh, unpacks for us the movement towards uh, full consent to a passion in the mind and the heart. And, and so we'll see, I think with great clarity, why it is important uh, to be so vigilant in this regard and to seek this kind of simplicity. Any comments so far on the first few little sayings? Okay. Number five, he is chaste who has continually acquired perfect insensibility to difference in bodies. So a one who has you know, developed this capacity to see that which is beautiful, uh, but to see more importantly, the other in such a way that our first evaluation, what first comes to mind, the movement of the heart is driven by what we see in the individual, not simply by the physical appearance. And so insensibility would mean more that we aren't driven by the passions, that we are driven uh, by, again, something far greater, uh, our capacity to see the greater truth about who we are as human beings and who others are as human beings. We don't objectify them or ourselves. And so developing a perfect insensibility means that we are not driven in our interactions with others by our passions. So I wouldn't want us to come away from this thinking that John is saying we have to have a kind of hardness of heart. We have to become so hardened to the realities around us that we don't see them as they truly are. And in fact, the opposite should be true. The clearer our vision becomes because of our purity of heart, we should be able to see and discern the truth of, real, of realities that we confront on a daily basis with a greater clarity, to see what is good, but also to see what is evil or what is sinful, what is beautiful and true, as well as what is truly ugly and what, what is false, what is filled with air. And, uh, and so, purity of heart and chastity is not closing our eyes to the world around us. It's developing the kind of vision 
uh, which we would call discernment that allows us to see the, the truth and the essence of those things. Number six, the role and limit of absolute and perfect purity is to be equally disposed towards animate and inanimate bodies, rational and irrational. So an interesting little thought, uh, the role and limit of absolute and perfect purity is equally disposed to the animate and inanimate bodies. So uh, whether it's something that is living or simply a material object, that our, our purity of heart is to be uh, equally strong and equally true in regards to whatever it might be. Uh, because we can develop a kind of lust and hunger for the things of this world. And this is why we will move on to discuss things like avarice, where uh, maybe gluttony and lust uh, do not have such a grip upon us. Our lust or our hunger uh, for the things of this world, our coveting of them, is a kind of impurity of heart as well that we long for these things, long to possess them, uh, sometimes because of what we think their inherent value is or because of their particular beauty to the eye. Any thoughts or questions so far? Okay. It's just sort of getting into the nitty gritty of things here. Number seven. Let no one thoroughly trained in purity attribute its attainment to himself, for it is impossible for anyone to conquer his own nature. When nature is defeated, it should be recognized that this is due to the presence of him who is above nature. For beyond all dispute, the weaker gives way to the stronger. So the natural gives way to the supernatural, that it is grace alone that can elevate nature and uh, raise it up out of the baser way that we often approach it or make use of it. Uh, but we do not, and we have to have it clear in our mind. And this is why the fathers will attach humility to this and the struggle for it uh, so, so frequently, that we, we cannot attribute any growth in this simply to ourselves that it's only by God giving us a kind of grace that again allows us to see the greater truth of things as, as well as purifying the disordered attachment that we often develop towards things as well. And uh, I've mentioned this before that, you know, St. Philip Neri said that, you know, purity of heart or chastity in that battle, the cowards are the victors. Uh, and he said, those who flee, those who run, uh, that we never want to expose ourselves willingly uh, to test or temptations of the flesh. So whenever we find ourselves in an environment where that's true, we should run. Uh, and uh, on some level, it seems cowardly, he says, but on another level, it's wise that we would not put ourselves to the test when it comes to something that's tied so mu much to natural appetite and desire. We're never going to win that battle by ourselves. And so the best thing for us to do is to flee, and in particular flee to prayer, where God can strengthen us 
and allow us to move forward. The moment that we even turn our attention solely to such temptations that are tied to the flesh, the battle has been lost in some ways because we've taken our eyes off of God. And uh, I think uh, we would be much stronger uh, in this, in regards to our thoughts during a given day, if we develop that habit of making use of the brief arrow prayers to gently turn the mind and the heart to God, rather than to become upset or filled with anguish or anxiety about a wave of thoughts or temptations that might be coming to us, that the wiser path is just to gently use the Jesus prayer uh, to direct the thoughts toward God as often as they come, uh, but not to let the heart become agitated, not to let ourselves be drawn into anxiety, uh, because anxiety will often feed into uh, our being more vulnerable uh, to temptation. And, you know, when we see ourselves as weak and uh, or when we think the thoughts are always coming from ourselves, we can grow despondent. And in that sense, weaken ourselves in the battle as well. So always turning toward God in this regard. Number eight, the beginning of purity is a refusal to consent to thoughts and occasional omissions unaccompanied by fantasies. The middle state of purity is natural movements due only to the excess of food and which come to pass unaccompanied by fantasies and are free of any discharge. The end of purity is the mortification of the body preceded by the mortification of the thoughts. So I used to, when I used to have to edit the text, I would typically edit out these paragraphs rather than have to discuss them within, within a group. Uh, but, uh, you know, John is writing certainly for men and monks. And, uh, and so he's addressing here the, the refusal of consent of thoughts, which I think is clear to us, that the battle for us is psychological, it involves the struggle with the logismoi, the, the multitude of thoughts that come upon us and flood us. Uh, but there is a natural and bodily aspect of this. And he talks about nocturnal emissions here that often arise uh, because of overeating or overdrinking, that the body will respond to this heaviness from uh, the uh, of overeating and over drinking uh, in such a way that one will wake up in the night either you know being aroused or there will be a nocturnal omission. And so what he's saying here is that one has to help oneself in this battle. So as again not making oneself vulnerable, uh, to then fantasies that can even develop because of the bodily movement that takes place because of overeating or overdrinking. And uh, I've often heard women say, well, what, wh how about women? How does this affect them? And uh, I don't know, uh, to be honest with you. I think the struggle with the thoughts is the same. And I, and I imagine the overeating has its negative effect as well. I think uh, we need a modern day ama to uh, write an ascetical text for us to, to describe that in greater detail. 
the John Climacus and John Cassian often go into extraordinary detail about this because you can imagine for a monk living in a monastery, having a clear sense of what goes on emotionally, intellectually in regards to one's thoughts, but also physically would be very important in this spiritual, spiritual battle. Uh, and in any case, thoughts and rich food in particular will dissipate one in regards to depth of prayer. And so we've talked about this in terms of fasting in the past, the regular fasting, abstinence, avoiding rich foods, uh, not eating between meals, uh, so not you know, snacking, not constantly grazing, uh, all, all these things become very important in the spiritual battle, especially knowing what John is talking about here, that physically we can find ourselves at a disadvantage if we're not being disciplined. Anybody have any thoughts or comments about that one? No? Okay. <laughs> Sometimes you have to have a sense of humor about these things, uh, especially when you're the one that has to talk about them, but okay. Uh, number nine, truly blessed is he who has acquired perfect insensibility to every bodily form and coloring and grace. So he comes back uh, to, to this thought again of insensibility, that a person is, is truly blessed when he's able to, to move among the things of this world and his encounters with others and to be, be able to look upon these things, not through the lens of one's passions, but through the lens of grace that allows us to see them for what they, they really are, as something created by God, the, we're able to see, the, again, the goodness and the beauty of them. And uh, again, maybe few of us have ever even perhaps tasted that, where we're able to look upon the things of this world and even to see the things that are ugly or rooted in violence, sin, evil, and look upon that with pity and compassion, but to look upon the things of this world again and not objectify them in the sense of simply being there to satisfy our baser needs, given to us perhaps by God for joy uh, that we might truly see the beauty in everything uh, that we experience as human beings, uh, but to, to see them with a kind of holy innocence with which he had created us. Number 10, not he who has kept his clay undefiled is pure, but he who has completely subjected his members to his soul. So, you know, not every person who is physically uh, a virgin is necessarily pure of heart. That, uh, a person may have simply not had the opportunity, may have avoided those occasions, but still within their minds and their hearts, uh, there can be a kind of impurity there. So simply not acting on 
the appetite doesn't necessarily mean that one's heart is pure and that one is able to see uh, things with a great clarity. Whereas one may be in a certain period of their life was were may, maybe they were wholly in the grip of their passions and driven by particular uh, uh, sins, but th through the ascetic life and through the life of grace, uh, reach this purity of heart and that uh, they're so transformed again by their prayer and by grace uh, that they might not be virgins physically, but spiritually uh, renewed in such a sense that they are. Anthony writes, St. Gregory of Narek on the Song of Songs does a very good job of drawing holy innocence from a love story. Yeah, I, he's just becoming more uh, well-known, I think, since he was he's made a doctor of the church I believe not too long ago. And if you have the opportunity uh, to read some of his writings, they're, they're very much like Ephraim the Syrian in their quality, extremely beautiful. I haven't had the opportunity to read uh, his writings on the Song of Songs though. I'd be very interested in uh, finding a copy of that. So if, if you can reference it, uh, Anthony, in the notes, that, that would be helpful. Okay. All right. Number 11, he is great who remains free from passion when touched, but greater is he who remains unwounded by the sense of sight and who by meditation on the beauty of heaven has conquered the fire caused by sight. So uh, he is great who remains free from passion when touched. So even uh, when physically experiencing intangibly experiencing the, the presence of another, that one is not immediately driven, uh, you know, again, to take hold of that or driven by passions or driven into kind of fantasy about it. And so can receive those things again with a kind of holy innocence. Uh, but greater is he who remains unwounded by the sense of sight. So the one who's purified their hearts so much that they're unmoved, uh, even by the things that they see. And again, I think our generation should know this very well of how hard that is. And I've mentioned in many of the groups before, uh, I think it's St. Paisius saying that the, the pure of heart in our day have to have the courage of the martyrs of old, that those who are seeking this kind of purity and uh, of heart, are going to have to guard the senses and order, order the appetites with such vigilance and such discipline and such reliance upon the grace of God that there's going to have to be a kind of heroic virtue present there, heroic courage. And uh, it's not a stretch uh, to, I think, agree with him on that, that it is such a battle in our day. And we've talked many times about the affliction of pornography and how early that starts. And I think once we sort of take that into consideration, we begin to see, yes, you know, if children of eight years old and sometimes younger are being exposed to this, you know, how is it that one maintains purity of heart throughout uh, one's life into old age? Louise Gaston. Uh, writes, would you say that purity of heart coupled with an observing ego allows for a sensitive detachment and discernment with God's grace too? 
Absolutely. And uh, very student. In fact, this is where he's leading us. Uh, this observing ego, as you describe it, you know, this capacity to look, see the world around us. Uh, it's the purity of heart that then gives us this gift of discernment to see things clearly, not only in terms of the temptations that, again, come to us, but to be able to discern the will of God for us, but to discern truth of certain circumstances, of realities of life as a whole. And uh, I would say not only with God's grace too, but only with God's grace does that take place. Uh, I think given our, our weakness and our tendency towards sin, that it's only when we make an abandonment of ourselves to God, especially through our prayer, that this, our ego then can be purified. The ego is, you know, we talk a lot about it. It's become part of our, you know, common parlance. And, you know, we say ego and we think of the, the self, but it's really more than that. And I think it really arises out of sin in the sense of uh, this kind of self-absorption, you know, this drive for self-satisfaction and, um, uh, it's only by uh, grace then that our conscience can be sensitized to such an extent that the power of the ego to drive us in our relations with others, but also towards ourselves and our wants uh, can be trans transformed, that we're enabled to see the truth again. Let's see, number... 12. He who drives away this dog by prayer is like someone fighting with a lion. He who subdues it by his resistance is someone still pursuing the enemy. But he who has once for all reduced its assault to nothing, even though he's still in the flesh, is as one who's already risen from the coffin. So it's interesting, you know, one who's in struggling against this with prayer, it's still as if we are wrestling with lines, that this is how powerful the passion, passions tied to our bodily appetites can be. And so the depth of prayer has to be great in order to have strength to go up against uh, this kind of voracious appetite that we will have. And, uh, and so he, this he even says about prayer, uh, whereas the, the one who uh, subdues it by his resistance is to someone still pursuing the enemy. So resisting it directly, uh, rather than turning away from the temptation, like Philip Neary had said, to flee, the, our resistance and, and fighting with it is actually a kind of evidence that there's an attachment there. We're still directing our attention to the particular pull of of the temptation and that's a hard thing to begin to see within the spiritual life because when we feel overwhelmed by thoughts when we're we have a wave of temptations flooding over us we begin to try to wrestle with it to try to wrestle with our own mind and our own thoughts and uh but it's always a losing battle when we do that, again, because of the multitude of the thoughts and the strength of, of the appetites themselves. It's only when we direct the attention toward God 
that we are strengthened by his grace. And the fact, the reason that we're engaging in that hand-to-hand -hand combat, as it were, is because there's still part of us that's attached to the things that even lead to the passion. Uh, our real freedom comes when we, again, abandon ourselves to God. Remember how he starts out this section about saying that there, this uh, immaterial fire is what ex extinguishes the material fire. The greater our desire for God, the greater our longing for God becomes, then the less that desire of the flesh becomes for us in our life. And so similarly here, that the one who is like one who's risen from the dead uh, is, is one who is not even paying attention to the thoughts or temptations as they might be set before us and has uh, so filled the mind and the heart with attachment to God that that's where the thoughts are. So he now allows no room in his mind or his heart for a sinful thought to uh, the seed of a sinful thought even to find purchase. You know, the, the, the soil of our heart, as it were, has been so purified that it's only the seed of God's grace and that which is good uh, that uh, begins to, to grow and flourish there. And uh, we will often try to live in two worlds, you know, and, and sometimes in very subtle ways, you know, that we'll have one foot, you know, directed towards the kingdom and the other firmly rooted in the world. And we'll allow ourselves to drift in these daydreams or, uh, again, even under the guise of battling with certain thoughts and temptations, really being driven by our desire for them. That's how deep the, the deceit of the evil one can be, to mask spiritual battle uh, or to mask attachment to sin as spiritual battle. You following me on that? Uh, that got a little muddy there, but any thoughts or comments? Uh, yes, Louise, again, would you say that one's engagement in pornography, gluttony, etc., is basically a defense against the pain of our longing for God's presence? Uh, yes, a defense against it, or, you know, a, a kind of even, we're not conscious of it, but a desperate attempt to fill that void. And so we will turn from one thing to another. And again, we, we talked a little bit about this in regards to fasting, where Christ ties the hunger of the body to our hunger for he who is the bread of life. When, when the bridegroom is taken away, then they will fast. So our bodily hunger, our desire, even for food, behind that is our desire for he alone, who's the bread of life, who can satisfy the deepest longings of the heart. And so we will often move from thing to thing, looking for something to fill that void. And the moment that uh, uh, it no longer can do that, again, we either return to what it is that we were uh, making use of, like a dog returning to its vomit, a sinner returns to his sin, or we'll search for something else that seems more powerful uh, for us and more enduring, you know, drugs, alcohol, 
food, we use sleep. Sometimes people, you know, simply seek to, you know, step out of dealing with that feeling, that emptiness by stepping out of consciousness. Uh, it's kind of depression. And, you know, I, I know there's clinical depression, of, of course, and things that are rooted in trauma. And we've talked about this before, but they're, you know, in large part, I think, as, as human beings, we also feel something, you know, often described as despondency. But I think there's even a kind of an emotional uh, depression that we experience by constantly coming up against that reality of feeling this emptiness within us. And if God isn't a part of our life, and we aren't seeking that fullness in him, inevitably, we're going to feel very empty at times, very lonely and very isolated, even when surrounded by things and a multitude of people, we can still feel that emptiness deep within us. Okay, good question. Number 13, if a sign of true purity is to be unmoved by dreams during sleep, then it is certainly a mark of sensuality to be subject to emissions from impure thoughts when awake. So again, he sort of gives you an insight into the uh, psychology of, of man, <laughs> that even daydreams uh, can move uh, a man to bodily movement. And, uh, and so there doesn't have to even be an encounter there with one and with another. And thoughts, fantasies in and of themselves uh, can draw the whole self, the whole body into the, the passion itself. Uh, and so, you know, purity of heart, uh, again, a good measure of that can be the, our dreams. And I, I don't want to make people obsessed about this or anxious about it, that if one has an erotic dream, that you should all think, oh my gosh, you know, I'm, I'm a terrible person. Uh, but, you know, often the heart is described by the fathers in a way that would sound very much like the unconscious to us. And we hear Christ in the gospel say, out of the, out of the depths of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of this deepest part of who we are, what are what is real, really within us on this deep level, will often come to the surface in what we say. And similarly, I think our dreams, you know, Freud called it the royal road to the unconscious. And so often in our dreams, we will see what might be very deep within us. We really might not be conscious of it, but it still dwells within us. And so I, I think what the fathers began to see that as there was a purity of heart that began to grow, uh, and as they embraced the ascetic life, including, you know, watching what they would eat, fasting regularly, and the depth of their prayer life, that the purity of heart could become so deep that even the depths of the unconscious began to experience the healing grace of God. And we've talked about this on multiple levels about how hopeful this can be. The sins that we don't see or know fully uh, can be touched by the grace of God and healed. Uh, but even memory, uh, you know, certainly of past sin uh, can be something that is healed as well. 
that often we will have those memories of those past sins that can either lead us in them into them again uh, because they come back to mind or they lead us into a kind of deep shame uh, that uh, makes us fall into a kind of despondency and make us think that we're outside of the reach of God's grace and forgiveness. And so the more that we open ourselves to him, the more vulnerable we become to God in prayer, the more his grace can touch those deepest regions of who we are as human beings. And I think we find that frightening. I think uh, as with anything, uh, when we feel vulnerable uh, and when there are those parts of ourselves that are exposed, we draw back into the defensive position. And uh, as you know, many of our defenses are unconscious and that can be true, uh, in fact, most of them. And, uh, and so we will often shrink back from God and resist engaging in certain aspects of the spiritual life uh, because we can fear being seen, even though God looks upon us with nothing but love and compassion and mercy. Uh, there can be this deep-seated fear that we have, that we are going to be judged harshly, rebuked, punished. And uh, our image of God can become very much a projection of what we experienced growing up, you know, from, and in our relationships with those who were sort of the key figures in our formation as human beings. And if we were treated and, you know, roughly and abused or mocked or, uh, you know, where we were treated with constant anger or belittlement, then it can take a long time until a person begins to feel comfortable approaching God or where that vision of God is gradually altered and becomes closer to the reality. Any further thoughts or comments? Okay. Number 14. He who fights this adversary by bodily hardship and sweat is like one who has tied his foe with a string. But he who opposes him by temperance, sleeplessness, and vigil is like one who puts a yoke on him. He who opposes him by humility, freedom from irritability and thirst is like one who has killed his enemy and hidden him in the sand. And by sand, I mean humility because it produces no fodder for the passions, but is mere earth and ashes. So interesting. It's sort of what I've been talking about earlier that uh, if we're fighting the adversary by bodily hardship and sweat, uh, if we're simply engaged in uh, this kind of spiritual battle, but that's very much on the surface, then we're still being locked too much in a battle with the passion itself and attached to it on some level. So he's saying it's like trying to tie up a foe with a string, that uh, we're not going to win that battle. Temperance, uh, so in terms of what we eat, uh, sleeplessness, so uh, being, uh, again, uh, restrained in the amount of sleep that we give ourselves, keeping vigil, breaking the night for prayer, or get it rising early for prayer, 
is one who puts a yoke upon him that real strength and gains uh, on the passion come through this kind of depth of prayer where physically we are humbling the body in regards to food and sleep and then and humbling ourselves in mind by giving ourselves over to this deep prayer which includes this prayer at night where the thoughts slow down the mind has been humbled we move from the mind deep into the heart at that point so you can see where he's leading us here from fighting on the surface to entering more and more deeply into those realms of the mind and the heart where the, the battle is won. And then finally, the, the things that uh, give us real strength is hum humility, uh, understanding that we, we come from the, the earth and uh, that it is God himself that gives us life and grace and gives us virtue freedom from irritability so we do not judge others at all we do not direct that insensitive faculty towards others and their sin but always keep it focused upon ourselves and then thirst you know certainly thirst for god but that we would experience in our bodily thirst uh again a, a kind of deeper thirst for uh, what God alone uh, can, what's the word for it? Slake? <laughs> uh, satiate is with food typically, but uh, I don't know what the word would be with satisfying one's thirst, but you get the idea in any, in any case that we would experience on this level of a physical thirst, a thirst for God, a longing for him. And when we have all of these things, Put together this is where the enemy is buried in the sand has has been put to death that our one longing our one desire is for god everything has been ordered towards him and we're, we're no longer seeking the things that give rise to the passions so here we see you know in his writing uh you know something of how the, the fathers would approach the scriptures too. You know, obviously the image here is of Moses killing the Egyptian and burying him in the sand. And, uh, you know, the, so the image is a visceral one for us, uh, that this is what our response is to be. You know, this is what will put to death that which holds us in bondage, humility, freedom from irritability and judgment, and then thirst for God. This is what breaks the shackles altogether. Number 15, one keeps this tyrant bound by struggles, another by humility, and another by divine revelation. The first resembles the morning star, the second, the full moon, the third, the blazing sun, and they all have their conversation in heaven. But from the dawn comes light, and in the light the sun rises. So too, from what has been said, we can reflect and find this in our own experience. So the greatest light uh, and comes to us through what has been revealed to us in Christ that our hope 
our joy, our strength, our grace comes through what he has done for us in, in and through the incarnation, but through his passion, death and resurrection, through the Paschal mystery, that he who keeps or she who keeps her eyes fixed upon this mystery and, and, and not in a passive way, but allows themselves to be drawn into that light that illuminates us uh, from this revelation. Uh, it, they're the ones that are transformed most fully. And I think sometimes we have this idea of, again, revelation, even as we hear scripture proclaimed at liturgy, we can often be one step removed from it. We're hearing it, but in a passive kind of fashion. Whereas, you know, a heart that is humble but obedient, as we've talked about, ab adre, is able to hear and uh, internalize that word in such a way that that's when it becomes transformative. And when we receive the Holy Eucharist, uh, the word that we hear audibly proclaimed becomes, we become one with it through receiving the Holy Eucharist. So in no way are we to approach the, the word of God as simply something written on a page where we hold up the Bible and say, this is the word of God. You know, our, our response to that should be, no, that's such a, a truncated vision of, of Christianity and what it means and our understanding of revelation, that God took our flesh upon himself. He assumed everything that there is about uh, what we are as human beings and has, have, has redeemed it. And that he's drawn uh, our humanity into the very divine life itself. And all that we uh, have experienced in and through our sin, all the sin that we've committed, all the consequence of it, the sorrow of it, the death of it, he's assumed and raised it up to life. And so our, our very humanity has been raised into the very life of, of the Godhead. And so how can we take sort of this passive view of the proclamation of that word? Uh, because I think we do that again in a kind of defensive posture. Uh, I've often talked about how extraordinary it is when you hear a gospel passage that re really should make you tremble and shake you the foundations of your life where we can sort of in this passive way respond well if it's latin right praise to you lord jesus christ and in this kind of joyful way yet when he might be uh condemning a certain sin or calling to repentance or some or even the beatitudes themselves which is sort of turns our view of life on its head uh if we're hearing it uh we should uh it should be with our our whole being and same thing when we receive the holy eucharist we can receive it in a consumerist kind of fashion as if we're walking up and taking it for ourselves rather than receiving the fullness of life and love. And uh, there has to be something within us that awakens us. And I think it is this purity of heart uh, because Cassian as well says that this is the immediate aim for us in this spiritual life, 
to pursue this because it's this that allows us to have that discernment to see the truth fully about what God has done for us, the depth of his love and his mercy, and to respond to that. Any comments? Anthony writes, so truth must be, as Soren Kierkegaard said, objective subjective. The internal scent must be actively given to the external reality. This is how the Blessed Virgin Mary lived, right? You know, so long as, say, John the Baptist and his words, his call to repentance, you know, are as flat as the page upon, their upon which they're written, they're not going to move us. You know, but if John stands before us as fully and as truly as he did in the Jordan, then the words should pierce our hearts. Uh, and so it, it, we have to hear, but then receive it, as you said, internally here. And the most, in the subjective way where it's, it's not as though we're applying it to somebody else or something within the world or reading it merely as history, but as something that's being played out within us, that just what we went through, Holy Week, you know, that, th that we enter into that, again, not, uh, and should not enter into it in a passive fashion. In fact, liturgy is meant to allow us to enter into it in the fullest of measure. And that's, why, again, too, why we fast as deeply as we do during Lent as well and in pre pre uh, preparation uh, for Holy Week that we are, you know, poised fully in mind and body to enter into the greatest mystery uh, that changes the way that we see our dignity and our destiny. So, a couple minutes here yet. Uh, certain, let's see here. Am I on number 16, is that correct? Number 16. The fox pretends to be asleep, and the body and demons pretend to be chased. The former in order to deceive the, a bird, and the latter to, in order to destroy a soul. This is where uh, Pope Shenouda in the book that I mentioned on the life of repentance and purity uh, is superb. Uh, he talks about um, backsliding and he has this one chapter called uh, the Canaanites in the land. Uh, Joshua, if you remember in the scriptures does not drive out all the Canaanites and they grow strong and they begin to pull uh, the, the uh, Israelites towards idol worship, and uh, and we will do something similar in the spiritual life. Well, the the Canaanites in the land that we will not fully drive out our attachments uh, to particular sins. And one of the reasons is what John uh, describes here: that a fox will pretend to be asleep, will be motionless, pretend not to notice the birds around him, and the demons will. Uh, cease tempting us for a period of time until we become unguarded, inattentive, and then pounce upon us when we are unaware or, or vulnerable. And uh, so we have to be vigilant at all times. 
Do not trust, I'm sorry, throughout your life, do not trust your body and do not rely on it till you stand before Christ. Uh, and so you see in the footnote there, it can also be translated clay. So, you know, we don't trust the body in the sense that we don't trust that we have a perfect order of our appetites and all the things that are tied to the flesh until we are in, not only in the grave, but before, but uh, until we stand before Christ, that uh, we again never want to feel that we are uh, or fall into the, the delusion that we are, have grown free of these things while we are in this world. Do not trust that because of abstinence you will not fall. One who had never eaten was cast from heaven. So not, again, to trust. We, we know that our ascetic activities and practices are essential. And in order to open ourselves up to the grace of God and to allow that grace to bear as much fruit as possible, but not to fall into the delusion that because we have embraced these things, and because we've been abstinent uh, from certain foods for decades of our life, that we are going to be impervious, that uh, we can fall simply from an unguarded moment. And he uses the image of, of Satan himself, one who had never eaten falls uh, in this tremendous way from uh, the highest state of grace uh, uh, to the very depths. Angelo writes, Father, I have a question. Self-flagellation as a mortification is still uh, be helpful in this battle. I heard that it is no longer permitted by the church. Uh, I don't think there's ever been a decree saying that uh, corporal disciplines, uh, bodily disciplines are not permitted by the church. Uh, when and when you have the the constant witness of the saints uh, throughout the ages embrace this, both in in the sense of uh, identifying themselves with the with Christ Himself, who was uh, scourged, and uh, you know, allowing ourselves to be rooted deeply in the mystery of the passion to identify with the crucified Lord. Uh, but in another way also the, to humble the flesh. Now, even among the saints though, they realized that there was a kind of danger in this, you know, kind of uh, uh, masochism uh, and that individuals could be led into extremes through practicing it. And even some of the saints acknowledged that in their youthful zeal, they did such things to great bodily harm. And uh, so uh, it's not to be practiced by anyone. If somebody came to me, Father, you know, how might I deepen my spiritual life? Or how might I humble the flesh? Uh, Self-flagellation is not going to be very high on that list. And uh, and not only because the harm it could cause physically, but I think there, the delusion that would arise out of pride, you know, that one would be doing these things, thinking that they have reached this very high level of sanctity. 
but it was very common. Uh, the community that I had belonged to, Phil, uh, the oratory, St. Philip Neri, uh, they practiced the discipline, I think it was three times a week, you know, within the church. And, you know, that meant dropping the top part of the cassock and on bare back. And, and so we know that saints have done this. Uh, as a way of mortifying, to putting to death, as it were, the desires of the flesh. Uh, but just to reiterate, there are, there are dangers of this. And uh, I think we want to follow Cassian in particular, and Climacus too, in the sense of moderation, avoiding extremes. And uh, I would not start with the extreme uh, in the spiritual life. Uh, or suggest that others would do so. But in my sense, I've never heard that it's been uh, uh, decreed that it's not permitted. Uh, there are communities that still practice it and practice it in a very kind of controlled fashion. Uh, David writes, this seems different by culture. The chapel of, uh, I'll, I'll jump there a little bit, of Guadalupe still washes blood on the cobblestones from the needs of the faithful entering the chapel. Opus Dei still uses, yes, I'm familiar with that too. And you're right. So it's, it is practiced. And that's, uh, it's not something that has been decreed by the churches that one shouldn't. But again, there can be, you know, there are cultures where people will crucify themselves too. And so we can see kinds of extremes that are gone to there. And uh, I think when we go back to the fathers, the focus is on purity of heart, what's going on internally. And if the spiritual practices are not aiding us in that, then they have no value, in fact, can have the opposite effect. And so our focus should be really in struggling with the thoughts, striving for humility, purity of heart, constant prayer. These are the things that should be at the forefront of our minds. Okay, so that brings us to 8.30 here. So we'll stop there for the evening. Uh, there's so much that's beautiful to come that I look forward to discussing with you. So we'll see, see you in the coming week. Okay, uh, why don't we close as always with our Father, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace.